Welcome back to our study of 2 Kings. We are in 2 Kings chapter 3. The last time we saw in chapter 2 how Elijah was taken up into heaven and Elisha has now uh, taken his place as it were and is now the, uh, the primary prophet operating in the book of 2 Kings. And at the very beginning of this study, at the beginning of 2 Kings, we saw that the very first line of the book told us about the rebellion of Moab upon the death of the king. So verse 1 of chapter 1 said, After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. And now in chapter 3, we get more of the story of that rebellion, what Moab did and how Israel responded and what Elisha has to do with this story, with what took place. So let's dig in to 2 Kings chapter 3, beginning in verse 1. It says, In the 18th year of Jehoshaphat king of Judah, Jehoram, the son of Ahab, became king over Israel in Samaria, and he reigned 12 years. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, though not like his father and mother, for he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. Nevertheless, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now let's stop here and notice what we are told about King Jehoram. Now, at the beginning of 1 Kings, uh, King Ahab has died, and the king in chapter 1 is Ahaziah. And Ahab, Ahaziah, and now Jehoram, who we're reading about in chapter 3, they're all kings of Israel. Remember, Israel is made up of the northern ten tribes, and uh, Judah is made up of Judah and the tribe of Benjamin, and, and Judah is in the south. So after Solomon's death, the kingdom of Israel was divided into two kingdoms, the northern part called Israel and the southern part called Judah. So Ahab and then um, Ahaziah and now Jehoram, they are all kings of Israel. At this time, uh, the king of Judah is Jehoshaphat. So when you read these opening verses, there are all these names, and some of them sound kind of the same, and it's easy to get bogged down or your eyes just glaze over. Um, but it, it's, it's helpful to remember, again, Jehoram is the king of Israel in the north. Jehoshaphat is the king of Judah in the south. All right? And uh, what are we told about Jehoram? Well, verse 2 says, He did evil in the sight of the Lord. So he's not a great king. right? He's doing evil things. But here's something good about him. We're told, though not like his father and mother. Now, who's that? Who were his father and mother? Well, we're told back in verse 1, Jehoram is the son of Ahab. Remember, Ahab was married to Jezebel. And Ahab and Jezebel were infamous figures, right? Both of them uh, were connected to Baal and the prophets of Baal, right? Baal being a false god. And so we're told here that he was not like his father and mother. So he, he was not a good king. He did do evil, but not like Ahab and Jezebel. And here's what's different. For he put away the pillar of Baal that his father had made. So his father, Ahab, <clears throat> had erected a pillar for the worship of Baal, and uh, 
um, he got rid of it, right? Jehoram got rid of it. Here, here's uh, when this happened, when uh, Ahab erected this pillar. First Kings 16, verse 31 and 32 says, And as if it had been a light thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, he took for his wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbal, king of the Sidonians. Baal is even, you can say that, Ethbaal. Baal's in the king's name of the Sidonians, and went and served Baal and worshipped him. He erected an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, which he built in Samaria. All right, so um, he married Jezebel, and he worshipped Baal, and he even built an altar for Baal in the house of Baal, right, in, right there in Samaria, which is the capital of the kingdom of Israel, the northern kingdom. So uh, Jehoram is not doing that. In fact, he removed that pillar from Baal uh, that had been erected for Baal. Nevertheless, it says in verse three, he clung to the sin of Jeroboam the son of Nebat, which he made Israel to sin. He did not depart from it. Now, what is that? Remember that Jeroboam the son of Nebat, he was the first king of Israel whenever Israel broke off from Judah after the death of Solomon. So he was the first king of Israel when the kingdoms were divided. And what Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, did was he, uh, he set up a golden calf in Dan, which is in the far north of Israel, and in Bethel, which is in the southern part of Israel, uh, just before you would get into the, the southern kingdom of Judah. And so he set up these two golden calves Kind of like when Aaron uh, made the golden calf for the Israelites in the wilderness after they came out of Egypt. He makes two golden calves for the people to worship. Did other sinful things as well. But that's probably primarily what is in mind here. So though Jehoram is not devoted to Baal in the same way his father and mother were, he is still tangled up in idolatry. He still is an evil king. Alright, so that's what we know about Jehoram so far. Now, now comes the part of the story about Moab's rebellion against Israel. Verse 4 says, Now Mesha, king of Moab, was a sheep breeder, and he had to deliver to the king of Israel a hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab rebelled against the king of Israel. So King Jehoram marched out of Samaria at that time and mustered all Israel. And he went and sent to Jehoshaphat, king of Judah, uh, The king of Moab has rebelled against me. Will you go with me to battle against Moab? And he said, I will go. I am as you are, my people as your people, my horses as your horses. Then he said, By which way shall we march? And Jehoram answered, By the way of the wilderness of Edom. Okay, so let's pause there. Moab was evidently obligated to pay some sort of tribute to the nation of Israel, and it was pretty substantial, right? A hundred thousand lambs and the wool of a hundred thousand rams. But when Ahab died, the king of Moab uh, seized that opportunity, right, to cease that payment and and try to uh, rebel against Israel. Right, um, perhaps to get get out from under their thumbs, so to speak. Um, that kind of thing often happens when there's a transition in power. Right, we still see that kind of thing happening today. And so the king of Moab rebels, tries to get away from Israel or get out from under Israel or whatever. And uh, 
So what does Jehoram do? Moab has rebelled. How does Jehoram respond? Well, he uh, marches out against them. He musters the people of Israel, verse 6 says, and he invites the king of Judah to join him as he goes uh, on the offensive against Moab. And the king of Judah agrees. And um, the next thing to decide is, okay, well, how are we going to get there? What's our course going to be? And so they decide to go uh, by way of the wilderness of Edom, verse 8 says. Now on to verse 9. You've got Israel and Judah working together, traveling together to go confront Moab, which has tried to throw off Israel's yoke. Verse 9. So the king of Israel went with the king of Judah and the king of Edom. And when they had made a circuitous march of seven days, there was no water for the army or for the animals that followed them. Then the king of Israel said, Alas, the Lord has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. He says three because the king of Edom uh, is with them as well. Right. Uh, verse 11. And Jehoshaphat said, Is there no prophet of the Lord here? through whom we may inquire of the Lord. Then one of the king of Israel's servants answered, Elisha, the son of Shaphat, is here, who poured water on the hands of Elijah. And Jehoshaphat said, The word of the Lord is with him. So the king of Israel and Jehoshaphat and the king of Edom went down to him. Now here's we see, here we see something that happens pretty often, right? These kings set off, verse 9 tells us that the king of Edom is with them. Right, the king of Israel, king of Judah, king of Edom, verse 9. They set off on this march to go and confront Moab. And uh, it doesn't go well. And they end up not having enough water for the men or the animals. And at that point, they start thinking, we should ask God about this. or We should seek God about this. And that often happens to us too, right? We take off with our own plans, we don't think about God, um, and it's when we get in trouble, right, that we then realize, oh, we need to ask God. We need to ask God for help. We need to seek uh, God's will, etc. And that's not a bad thing. I mean, of course, it would be better to seek Him at the beginning, but there's no shame in once you get in trouble realizing, I need God's help and turning to God. And so that's what happens here. They uh, wonder if there's a prophet through whom they can seek the Lord. Somebody there knows about Elisha. And, um, and uh, the king of, of Judah says, hey, the word of the Lord is with Elisha. So that's, that's the guy we want to talk to. And so they go to seek out Elisha, which of course is a good thing to do. But what is going to happen when Jehoram, who is not faithful to the Lord, but is instead tangled up in idolatry, what's going to happen when this idolatrous king comes to seek the prophet of the one true God? Let's see what happens. Verse 13, And Elisha said to the king of Israel, What have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. But the king of Israel said to him, No, it is the Lord who has called these three kings to give them into the hand of Moab. And Elisha said, As the Lord of hosts lives before whom I stand, were it not that I have regard for Jehoshaphat, the king of Judah, I would neither look at you nor see you. But now bring me a musician. And when the musician played, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Right, so Elisha confronts the king of Israel and says, you know, what do you and I have to do with each other? They don't even worship the same God, right? Um, Elisha says, go talk to 
you know, the the God of your or the prophets of your father and the prophets of your mother, that'd be the prophets of Baal. Go go seek them. Right? So that sounds like um, he has not completely cast off the connection to Baal, perhaps. I think at least one uh, thing I read suggested that he might still be, um, that, that still might be a, a presence, right? The, the, uh, the prophets of Baal and the worship of Baal, even though he did get rid of that one um, pillar. Or it could just be Elisha testing him. Uh, where is your allegiance? Are you still uh, connected to Baal and to the prophets of Baal? But the way Elisha says it sounds like it's probably, uh, he probably does still have some kind of connection there. Um, but he insists that it's the Lord he needs to hear from, Jehoram does. And so uh, Elisha says, well, I, you know, I have regard for the king of Judah. And so, you know, I, I will bring some music and let's see what God says, right? Uh, so then verse 16 says, um, uh, well, the end of verse 15 said, the hand of the Lord came upon him. Now verse 16. And he said, thus says the Lord, I will make this dry stream bed full of pools. For thus says the Lord, you shall not see wind or rain, but that stream bed shall be filled with water so that you shall drink you, your livestock and your animals. So there, Elisha says, okay, your water problem is going to be solved by God. The stream bed is going to be filled with water. You're not going to see it rain, but the water is going to come. And it's interesting, right? That one of Elijah's chief miracles, so to speak. I don't know what the best word for it is, but when um, there was a, a drought and it didn't rain until Elijah prayed for rain to come, right? That was a, a miracle, so to speak, having to do with water or a, a prophetic sign or event or whatever you want to call it. And here again, we have another uh, miracle, this time with Elisha, that's also related to water. That's another connection between their two ministries. But then he says, verse 18, this is a light thing in the sight of the Lord. Like, that's not even a big deal. He will also give the Moabites into your hand, verse 19, and you shall attack every fortified city and every choice city and shall fill every good tree, uh, excuse me, fell every good tree and stop up all springs of water and ruin every good piece of land with stones. Okay, so not only is God going to give you water, he's also going to give you success in your venture against the Moabites. You're going to destroy them and you're going to, you know, uh, ruin the land and, and so on. You're going to thoroughly conquer them, um, Elijah says, or excuse me, Elisha says. Then verse 20, the next morning about the time of the offering, the sacrifice, behold, water came from the direction of Edom till the country was filled with water. So there's the fulfillment of the first part of Elisha's word from the Lord. God is going to bring water to you and he does the very next morning. All right, now how's the battle going to go? Elisha just told us that the battle is going to be uh, one of victory, that the, uh, that the king of Israel and Judah and, and Edom, who are going against the Moabites, that they're going to be victorious. Uh, well, let's see how it plays out. Verse 21 says, When all the Moabites heard that the kings had come up to fight against them, all who were able to put on armor, from the youngest to the oldest, were called out and were drawn up at the border. So Moab gets word, army is coming against us. Uh, they probably knew this was a possibility when they rebelled against Israel. 
So they've gotten a word and they muster the people right, to come to battle. Verse 22, And when they rose early in the morning and the sun shone on the water, the Moabites saw the water opposite them as red as blood. And they said, This is blood. The kings have surely fought together and struck one another down. Now then, Moab, to the spoil. So here's Moab's big mistake, right? They see the sun shining on the water. It looks blood red. And so they think, oh, the kings have already fought each other and killed each other. And we'll just come in and you know, reap the benefits. Now, this struck me as a little odd when I read this because I thought, you know, wouldn't they have known that that's the water looks red in the morning like that? Um, but you know, it's possible. Sometimes it's just the, the light hits it just right. You don't see that every day or even every week or something. So maybe they just, maybe it's just, you know, uh, something they hadn't paid attention to or hadn't caught quite that way. But then I was reading something that, that made me realize maybe something else was at work here. I hadn't thought about the fact again, until I was, uh, reading this, that, um, Maybe it's because there wasn't water there before. Remember, God has just brought water into the land because the, um, the king of Israel and his group, they didn't have water for them, their men or their animals. And so God has brought water. And so perhaps um, that's what's going on here for the Moabites too, that there wasn't water here before. And they, maybe they don't know the water has come now or they're not used to there being water there. And so when they see something out there, they think it's, blood when in reality it's just water. So they come out thinking that the battle is basically already over even though they haven't had to fight. But then here's what happens next, verse 24. But when they came to the camp of Israel, the Israelites rose and struck the Moabites till they fled before them. And they went forward, striking the Moabites as they went. And they overthrew the cities and on every good piece of land, every man threw a stone until it was covered. They stopped every spring of water and felled all the good trees till only its stones were left in Kir Haraseth and the slingers surrounded and attacked it. So now we have the fulfillment of the second part of Elisha's word from the Lord, which is that Israel would be victorious over the Moabites, that they would defeat them, um, that they would spoil the land and all those kinds of things. It happens just like he said. But the story's not over yet. Moab makes another desperate attempt. Verse 26 says, When the king of Moab saw that the battle was going against him, he took with him 700 swordsmen to break through opposite the king of Edom, but they could not. So they make another desperate venture to try to break through the line, and it, they just can't do it. Then, verse 27, this, um, this is a, a both troubling and difficult verse. Look at what it says, verse 27. Then he took his oldest son, this is talking about the king of Moab, he took his oldest son who was to reign in his place and offered him for a burnt offering on the wall. And there came great wrath against Israel, and they withdrew from him and returned to their own land. Now what in the world is going on there? First of all, it's troubling because the king of Moab sacrificed his own son, right? the heir to his throne. That's how desperate he was, and this was a terribly wicked thing to do. But why is it, here, here's what's difficult about it, why is it that the king of Moab offering his son as a sacrifice on the wall brings great wrath against Israel? Why does it work that way? 
Well, here's um, two things we know aren't happening and one thing that might be happening. And I, these are the same three things that the, the ESV study Bible suggests, if I'm not mistaken. When I was looking at that, it suggested the same three things I'm going to suggest to you. And uh, I'm sure, though I wrote these down before I've found them there, I um, have probably heard somebody else say them before. And the last one for sure, I remember, I can't remember where, but um, somebody suggested this and I'm glad they did because um, I don't know that I ever would have put this all together. But here are the three things. Here, two that we know it can't be, one that we uh, think it might be. Right? Here's what we know it can't be. We know it can't be that the God of the Moabites saw this sacrifice and then brought great wrath on Israel. The reason why we know it can't be that is because the God of the Moabites is not a real God. They worship a false God. They don't worship the one true God. And so it can't be that they're... Uh, their king's sacrifice to their false god brought real wrath on Israel. So that's not what's going on. The other thing we know is not going on is that the, Moabites, the Moabite king offering his son as a sacrifice did not convince the God of Israel to bring wrath on the Israelites. Right? In other words, this uh, sacrifice of the king's son didn't move the false god of the Moabites, because he doesn't really exist, but it also didn't move the real god, the god of Israel, to bring wrath upon the Israelites. That wouldn't happen, right? Because for all kinds of reasons. One, this is not the kind of sacrifice that God would honor, right? Here's what it might be, right? And, and this is the, the best explanation that I've come across. I can't remember where I came across it. It's probably been quite some time ago, but it's also in the ESV study Bible. Um, and that is that when the Moabite people, the Moabite soldiers saw how desperate their king was to win this battle, so desperate that he'd be willing to sacrifice his own son and the heir to the throne, that somehow that terrible sacrifice drove the Moabite soldiers to renewed vigor such that they brought wrath on the army of Israel, right? And that doesn't undo Israel's, um, you know, defeat of Moab earlier in the story. The, what Elisha said was still fulfilled, but here at the end, they, they bring great wrath on Israel and Israel goes home, right? Um, those aren't the only three possibilities, right? Um, but those are the ones that I think are, uh, we most need to reckon with. Two that it can't be, right? And one that it might be. There are other possible, plausible suggestions um, out there, at least one I know for sure, um, and uh, that I can't call to mind at the moment, but wasn't as persuasive to me as, as this one. Um, but this is one of those places where at the end of the day, we just say, we don't really know for certain what is going on in this last part of the passage. What we do know is going on in this story is that the God of Israel right, demonstrates once again that he is the one true and living God because he's able to bring water to his people when they are in need, right? And notice they don't do anything. They don't do some kind of radical, terrible thing like offering the king's son. They just seek the Lord. They come to his prophet and God mercifully, graciously gives them 
water when they need it and where they need it. And also he gives them victory over the Moabites. Both of these things he tells them he's going to do before he does it through his prophet. And that shows right that this is the real God we're dealing with here. This is the real God who's revealing himself through Elisha. I, most clearly, let's remember, most clearly God has revealed himself, though, through his own son, who is not merely a prophet, who is more than a prophet, who is the word of God himself, the eternal word who took on flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, John says in John 1.14, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Amen. And may God bless you.